0: Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Jenna McWiggin. From a mobile soup kitchen in London to a stonewalled chamber filled with racks and racks of words, Jenna McWiggin has adventured on a path of discovery and communion. She marries logic with insight, and creativity abounds. A writer, teacher, activist, and roller derby athlete, her words bring us directly into each moment, each memory, and create a stereophonic sensory experience. Jenna, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Um just thinking about all of the um, things to talk about and the, the work that I've seen you create and process through over the last several years of following you online. And so I'm really grateful that you said yes. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an honor for me. Oh, I'm so glad you asked, so thank you. I am really interested to just start right off by asking you, what is writing to you?
1: You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question because you told me in advance. And I, I gave it some thought. I had this moment of almost panic when I first knew the question was coming. I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> and then I, I quieted my mind for a moment. and I was like, no, I really do know. Um, and I say this answer all the time. When people ask that, I say, writing is how I make sense of the world. But then I started to think a little more about what I actually mean by that. And I realized that it's, it's a twofold answer. So I literally mean, mean I make sense of the world because it helps me to organize my thoughts. And even more than that, it helps me to discover my thoughts. That um, often writing is a process of discovery for me. Um, and I write mostly so not exclusively, but a lot of creative nonfiction. And so I'm telling stories from my life. Um, but a lot of times I don't know what they're really about. I know there's like this moment or this thought or just an image I have of something that happened that I want to make sense of. Um, and it's not until I write about it that I really find out what it means to me. And so that's the one side of how I, what I mean when I say writing helps me make sense of the world. Um, But then the other way that it helps me make sense of my world is that I really see writing as an art and a craft um, and a way to create something of substance or beauty or connection or meaning, whatever word might work for me on a particular day. And so writing helps me make sense of my world because I'm creating art with words. And it, I feel like beauty and art really give meaning to my life and help me just, you know, exist in the world in a happier way, in a deeper way. So I was really glad you were going to ask me that question because I realized it, it helps me make sense of my world on almost every level, I think. Hmm.
0: You know, I, I love that. I um. I find that there is this common thread among the guests that I've had on the show, and for all of us, and I, I say us myself included, um, there really is that that way of understanding and um, getting really clear about our world and our life and the places that we fit into it. Um, you know, for some of us, we've been writing online for a long time and uh, creating that space online. Your online space is called the Word Seller. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that. And I would really like it if you could share what the Word Seller means to you and how it came to be. Well, back when I was going to, I knew I was going to start some sort of,
1: um, freelance writing business, which is how the word seller came into existence originally. Um, And I still do freelance writing for organizations and individuals, um, but I've expanded beyond that to do teaching and lots of other things. Um, And I I hadn't thought about just branding myself under my name at the time, because I was thinking about it more as a business. And so I was, I wanted like a business name. And so I came up with this brainstorm, this huge list. And I actually my husband and I can't remember which one of us came up with the word seller, c e l l a r, like a wine cellar. I think it was maybe him. Like I kind of wish I could take the credit for it, but I think it was his idea. Um, because <laughs> I originally had this this name that I loved that I wanted to use, but then I found out that there was somebody else who used um the same uh business name, and I was like, mm. dang it, I can't use it. So um, it really just came out of lots of brainstorming and um i think we were drinking a lot of wine at the time <laughs> we had this summer project where um we would um each have a day off during the week from work and we could and um, we would like get um two wines and we because we had done this on our honeymoon we'd gone wine tasting this was early in my marriage and um we like we're doing like our own like weekly wine tasting mm. and so not that to say like we were drunk doing the brainstorming though <laughs> so i i do not know if I think that the cellar part of it like a wine cellar the word cellar I think so that was like that kind of you know atmosphere where things um go to age and mature Mm -hmm. and you know deepen was kind of on our minds and then when you say the word cellar it's not clear at first if it's s-e-l-l-e-r or you know like one who sells words or if it's the cellar like a wine cellar but I love this image of the word cellar as a wine cellar and i'm actually can i read you a little description that i've written about yes cellar yeah um, i'd love that um it's on my about page on my website but i i envisioned like the word cellar is not a physical place though i kind of hope that one day it will be um and so this is how i envision it um i envision the word cellar as a cozy stone walled chamber filled with racks and racks of words. We have nouns, verbs, adjectives, and even some adverbs. The prepositions and conjunctions sit next to glass jars of jaunty little pronouns. Perfectly turned phrases shimmer magically in the shadows, and whole sentences often appear on the walls. There's a nook just for punctuation and another for grammar. Some people don't like to venture into those areas, but I don't mind them one bit. Some days you'll find me writing and others you'll see me editing, either my own work or maybe yours. Stacks of books sit next to overstuffed chairs, beckoning you to delve into a good read. The whole scene is illuminated by white twinkle lights, so the word seller is never dark, dank, or scary. This is a place where left brain meets right brain, where whimsy shakes hands with business, and communication is considered a sacred science and a time-honored art. Mm. But that's what the word Seller is to me. It's this place where it's cozy and magical, and there's books and words everywhere, and we can all just geek out over it.
0: <laughs> I love that. I've I've always loved that. And so, um, thank you for sharing that description. Uh, you're welcome. You mentioned that you do uh, writing, but you've also branched out. You do storytelling. And you teach workshops to other writers as uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you're working on right now is actually building an online community called the Writing Guild. And I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, this is something I am really excited about, and it's um something that's been in the works behind the scenes for a long time. Um, and so I do a lot of online courses um, that usually always have some sort of um, community component, but I've been looking at ways to kind of expand on that and get more people together in an ongoing way online for writing community. Um, And so the idea behind the Word Seller Writing Guild is that it's going to be a place that combines um, the community aspect and the education aspect of learning about writing um, with something new every month. So, we're going to each month we'll look at either a certain genre, like maybe we'll do a month on poetry, a month on fiction, a month on creative nonfiction, but then other months will also be, um, you know, focused on a specific aspect of the craft of writing, like finding and honing your writing voice, um, how to use metaphor effectively, so things like that. So, it's going to be very um, driven by the craft of things, but then um, like I had said in that description of what I envision the word seller yeah, as having that left brain meet right brain, um, I, I very much, I see the duality in everything, and I very much try to bring um, multiple sides to everything I do. And so in the guild, we're going to have all this education and great resources for writers But then we're also going to, you know, focus on the inspirational side of things with writing prompts and um, the community of just being together as writers and supporting each other and having small group opportunities where people can cheer each other on and give feedback. Um, We're going to have special guests and we're going to do fun, um, like book club style read alongs and these small group chats. And so I've got big plans and uh, I'm really excited that it'll be uh, out in the world because it's been a long time
0: coming. Mm, I love that. I think, you know, it's that, that sense of community is so important. I mean, that's really what this podcast is about. Um, I was feeling like all of these amazing conversations were happening, but there was no way to get them out into the greater community of writers. And, um, so I love that aspect of it as well, just that that teaching and sharing and learning, but also coming together and and just acknowledging our connection and and the the ways that we are common,
1: yeah, yeah, and um, I think that you know right you hear a lot of times people say that writing is such a solitary act um, and it is, and even if you're introverted and you get your energy from. From being alone um, and being alone with your thoughts, all of us need that interaction with other people um, who are like us and also different from us. And um, I think that I think that that's one of the best things you can do to nurture your own writing life is to find connection with other creative people, be it writers or you know in some other medium. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that. You're constantly, you know constantly going to uh, um, some sort of, you know, writing workshop or writing circle um, and being out with people all the time because there's a lot of writers who really kind of need a lot of downtime and that's one of the good things about having an online writing community is you can really easily moderate, like for yourself, how much interaction you're getting but then I think that interaction is so good for our creative beings because it energizes us, um, it shows us that we're not alone in the things we struggle with. Like one of the things I hear so often um, with uh, um, my, my students or I do coaching for individuals as well, is they're like, oh, I thought that was just me. Like when I say, here's a struggle I've had with writing and here's what I do to deal with that. Or here's like this weird thing that happens to me in my writing life. People are all the time like, oh, my gosh, that happens to me, too. or I'm just like that. I thought I was weird. or mm-hmm wrong or like that I couldn't be a writer because everybody else I thought did it this way but I do it this way and so I thought that negated my ability to be a writer and I'm like no you're a writer too it's
0: okay I love that yeah and it's it can be it can be really isolating um and and I think it's interesting um as I was getting ready to sit down and talk with you today I was thinking about some of the different things that you've written about and uh, chosen to share on your site and as part of your journey. And um, so I have these two sort of opposing, seemingly opposing things, right? Um, I wanna talk with you about deciding to go into an MFA program, which is stepping fully into a community of writers. And at the same time, talk to you about your time at the Vermont Studio Center and going on writing retreat, which is a very solitary thing. So I think it's interesting to have that balance of of both and. Um, so since we're talking about community, why don't we start by um, talking a little bit about why you ultimately decided to go into an MFA program um, and what made that decision for you? Yeah. Um, so back in, I think it was, uh,
1: 2010, I actually went on a long weekend writing retreat with, um, a friend of mine from college and a couple of her writer friends. And so we rented a house, um, on the Jersey shore in the off season. And, um, this was the first time I had gone away anywhere to try to write, um, like on a retreat, but with other people. Um, so this was like, I was actually terrified because I thought I'm not going to write anything all weekend. And I pretty much wrote nothing all weekend. (laughs) So my fears actually like ended up happening. But the best thing came out of that weekend was as I was because I didn't have really much writing community. I didn't have anywhere I lived. And I had um, some writing community with some people I knew online. But like this was a whole weekend spent with other writers and we would each do our own thing during the day and then in the evening we'd get together to make dinner and you know maybe workshop some of our stuff you know give feedback to each other and talk about writing and um i realized that all of these writers had were kind of a little further along in their writing journey than i was and I could keep up with the conversation, but it became very clear to me that I was like running to keep up. Like they were using terms that I didn't know or didn't fully understand and talking about things in a way that I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. And I don't like know a lot of this stuff. So then I started thinking like, okay, we can that was like this tipping point where I had felt for a while that my writing and my writing life had kind of reached this plateau. Like I was writing professionally and I was doing some creative writing, but I really felt like I wasn't. I was just. I was just had plateaued. I wasn't moving forward, and I realized that I really wanted three things that I, I I that came to light that weekend with these writers. I wanted more writing community. I wanted help with the craft of writing because I had kind of reached a point where I I kind of was starting to know what I didn't know. You know, like when you're really a beginner, like you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would reached a point where i had been writing long enough. I was like, okay, I kind of know the things that I'm not doing well. but I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. Like, I don't know how to get better. Um, so I wanted community. I wanted help with the craft. And then I just wanted to kind of know what was going on in the world of writing. Like the world of literary journals and publishing and all of that was, it felt like a foreign land to me. And I thought, well, how can I get all three of these things? that I'm looking for. Um, and grad school came to mind and I had thought about going to graduate school right after undergrad. But at that time I was thinking I'd go for like a literature degree and I wasn't really interested in doing that. I'd been in a literature major as a, an undergrad and liked it, but I wasn't sure I wanted to spend a couple of years like doing literary criticism and theory. Um, and so at this point I was like I was mm, I was well out of my undergrad when I decided to go back to school. Probably, let's see, I graduated in 98. I'll tell you how old I am. And then I didn't go back to grad school until 2009. So like nine years. Um, but look, I want to pause here and say that when I when I realized I wanted these three things, I thought, is grad school the only way to get them? And I realized, no, it's not. In fact, I had a good friend of mine who was like, are you sure you really want to like spend all this time and money going to grad school? Couldn't you just like, I don't know, like travel up to New York City a couple times a year and like take some of the Gotham writer workshops? Like wouldn't that, you know, be the same thing and save you a lot of, you know, resources? And she was actually right. It probably would have. And I realized I could have cobbled together everything I wanted in different ways. But it also felt really overwhelming to me to try to do that, you know, to try to find the community and find the help of the craft and find, like, connections to the wider literary world. Um, And grad school seemed to kind of offer that in one nice package. And so for me, I just felt in my gut, like, this is the right decision. Like, I want want it all in one, like, you know, one place that's going to connect me to all this stuff that I'm looking for. So that's how I decided. That's the long-winded version of how I decided to pursue the MFA. Um, and I, I decided that I wasn't going to move to go to school because, you know, I, I was married. We had a house. Um, my husband had a, a job that he wasn't, you know, looking to to move away from. And it just didn't seem like a good time in our life that I was going to look to move somewhere for grad school. So I looked at low-residency programs, um, which um, if people aren't familiar with them, basically the way they work is you go to the residency part is that you go to campus several um, times a year. Usually I went to Vermont College of Fine Arts and their low residency works You know, twice a year. You go to campus for 10 to 12 days and um, you have like all of these lectures and workshops and readings that you attend. So you like cram like these 10 days just, you know, full Of awesome stuff, including the community of other writers. And then the rest of the semester, you work one on one with an advisor who basically is your mentor. And every month, you submit a packet of work to them and you get feedback on it. And you have reading lists and you have creative work and critical work to be doing. So it's really cool because it mimics kind of what the life of a writer really is. You know, that time spent writing. On your own and then reaching out to a mentor to get feedback and then like going into community with people um in person a couple times a year. Um, like that model of the the graduate program was really is really similar to how I live my writing life now that I'm out of the program. So it was good. It was a good decision for me. Hmm. And you know, of course, you started by asking about the community part and um that's continued for me, like I've, you know, I made friends and I made these, these great relationships with people that have continued beyond that. And we're scattered all over the country we're all over the world, but we still, you know, can
0: can support each other. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, for people who might be considering MFAs, um, I think for a long time, there was this flack that was given to the residency program specifically, um, you know, about how, well, if you go to a low residency program, you're not going to get a job teaching or it's not going to be seen as a real MFA. And I know even 10 years ago when I was considering applying to graduate schools uh, and preparing to graduate with my undergraduate degree, that was the attitude. And I think that that attitude has really changed a lot because particularly low residency programs, they're really designed for people who have lives Um, I think, you know, people with kids and people with uh, families and houses and even jobs, you know, um, people who aren't writing for a living, but want to improve their skills and learn about the craft of writing and really make a commitment to themselves. I think low low residency programs are a great option for that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I did have that concern when I first started looking at grad schools I thought like are these really taken seriously am I just gonna mm-hmm. you know spend this time and money again on something that's just going to be a joke um and I actually have I don't know like I meet people with MFAs who've gone through tr- more traditional programs and they're usually I don't ever get a sense of like derision when I tell them I did a low residency they're mostly just like how does that work like yeah and <laughs> so um yeah, so I do think there there there's been a kind of a, a change in how people view it, um, but a lot of people don't know that it's an option that it's available and mm-hmm. that you know, it's really can be really enriching.
0: Yeah, and I know you've talked about um, one of the faculty members that you worked with at Vermont College of Fine Arts has actually been a guest on the show, Sue William Silverman. She teaches at Vermont, and in her episode, she talked a lot about why she chose to teach and in part, why she teaches at VCFA. So I think that's great that there's that connection and that continuity between episodes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I never, I, unfortunately, I never worked with Sue one-on-one, but I had her for two of my workshops during residencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just a fantastic teacher um, and facilitator. So, you know, some people have um real fears around work, writing workshop when you you know have to share work and get critique back from your mentors and your peers and um you can get really good workshops you can get really bad workshops depending on you know lots of human factors but Sue everyone that I was in with her she always set such a generous and respectful tone mm-hmm. and I always had great workshops with her because she's just so you know invested in treating people with dignity and respect and Treating their
0: writing the same way, so, so that's great. Yeah. Well, I we want to talk about Vermont Studio Center and um, what the value of going on writing retreat by yourself was for you and for your work.
1: Mm. So you know, it's funny. I don't even live in Vermont, but it seems like so many of my <laughs> my uh, writing ties end up there with uh, graduate school and the the Studio Center, which is a um, an artist colony. Um, so I did a month-long residency at Vermont Studio Center, um, uh, two Januarys ago, and I think I have really mixed feelings about it because I think it was a fantastic experience, and I have the feeling that I probably didn't use it as well as I'd hoped I would. Um, you know, the way it works is, you have your own room to, to stay in and you have your own studio to work in and um, meals are provided. And so you really don't have a lot of responsibility beyond what you're there to work on. And I had a friend who's gone to the studio center um, for, to do a residency before I went. And I asked her if she had any tips getting ready for it. And she said, she thought it was really helpful if you had a consistent writing practice at home before you go. Because if you show up at the residency and you have not been having a consistent writing practice, you kind of can feel, and I felt this way because I wasn't writing regularly and that's why I wanted to go is I wanted that dedicated time, but I kind of ended up feeling like, like too much freedom or something, like I was in free fall. I had all this time to write, and it reminded me of like that little writing weekend that I'd done with friends that I talked about. That like I wrote nothing that weekend because I was suddenly seized up with, oh, I have to write now, and I was afraid that was going to happen to me when I went to the month long residency, um, and so I, I gave myself permission to kind of ease into it because I knew a month was kind of a long time. Of course, it ended up feeling like it went faster than it did. Uh, I mean, faster than I thought it would. But um, I allowed myself to kind of ease into it and not have this expectation that I was going to write for, you know, 10 hours every day or something. And that helped a lot. Even though I said I came away feeling like I didn't use my time as well as I could have, um, I really think that not having that consistent writing practice or semi-consistent before I went in, um, I think it was difficult to develop that. but. On the plus side, and the plus side definitely outweighs um, my feeling of, you know, like I wasn't, I didn't live up to my own expectations or something. Um, I came out of there with um, with new work and work I'd revised, stuff I wouldn't have been doing if I'd just been at home. And it really energized me and helped me to refocus my attention so that I could build a more consistent writing practice in my everyday life. Mm. Because it became really evident to me, like, oh, look, I have all this time to write. And unless I'm making the conscious choice to do it, it's still not getting done. Like, I always have this delusion, like, if you love something, it'll just happen. But that's not actually true for me, and I think for a lot of people. You can love something and still put it off mm-hmm. or still find a reason not to do it. Yes. Yeah. And when I had all of this uninterrupted time to to devote to writing that became like super evident to me, like, oh, right, this is not, you know, my lack of writing is not about lack of time. It's really about the choices I'm making and where I'm putting my attention. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I would love to do another writing retreat for a couple weeks or a month, because I feel like that one experience helped me to really understand what I needed to do for myself to make sure I, you know, use the time the way I want to.
0: Yeah. And I think that they, you know, what you say about choice is really important. Um, I am reminded of someone I follow on Instagram who has a mug that says you have the exact same number of hours in the day as Beyonce. <laughs> and um, I just, you know, I'm often reminded of this, this statement in strange and unexpected ways. And so I think it's important for us to remember, you know, like, we are making a choice. Every single thing that we do, we're making a choice to do, whether it's to take the dog for a walk, or to sit down and watch a TV show. It's, it's all about choice. Yeah. Um and that is you know, I think that's important because when we go into these situations where we have a retreat, um whether it's a week or a month, um you know, or 8 weeks, we have to make those choices and that can be really hard and and really scary.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because then it's like it's all up to you when mm-hmm. you have the distractions taken away and you realize like, oh, know me not writing today had nothing to do with me having to cook dinner and run errands and you know take the cat to the vet or whatever right yeah it becomes it's all you and you realize that you have that power in your everyday life um but yeah i love
0: that exact same amount of hours as beyonce yeah (laughs) jenna i'd love it if you might read some of your work for us
1: yeah i love that Um. Alright, so I'm going to read an essay that's called, What is your emergency? And this was published on a literary journal called New World Writing. So um, I'll just jump in. What is your emergency? We both saw it coming. How could we not? It's a straight shot from the top of the hill through several intersections to the bottom. The driver must have seen us. Surely she was slowing down. You can't miss a big-ass Buick in the middle of the road unless you're just drunk enough to fail the sobriety test the police will give you and just cute enough to have those cops let it slide because you were barely over the limit, even though you just hit a fucking Buick. My brother was doing me a favor, moving our dad's royal blue Buick Park Avenue so I could get to the car parked behind it. Our mother's maroon Ford-toe was smaller, easier to maneuver the car I preferred to drive, the one I wanted to use to go see my fiancé at 11 o'clock on a summer night. My brother had backed the long sedan out of the driveway, over the sidewalk, into the street, and had stopped at a 45-degree angle, diagonal to both the sidewalk in front and the center line behind. I took a step closer to the road. I looked at my brother through the windshield. His slim college boy's bare neck and short summer hair incongruous behind that old man sized steering wheel. I motioned for him to roll down the window. Why the hell had he stopped? He didn't roll down the window. He had his head turned to the right, looking up the street. I turned to see what he saw. There had been no other cars on the road until there was. The SUV was black, with shiny chrome and bright headlights. When it crashed into the passenger side doors, I was still on the sidewalk, but just barely, my toes almost touching the curb. My brother was still in the car. Maybe she didn't, but I think the woman in the black SUV must have slowed up some, surely. Otherwise, it would have been more than a collapsed passenger side and whiplash. It would have been a Buick plowed through the intersection or rolling sideways down the hill. It would have been my brother, flattened or tumbling head over wheels. From the sidewalk, I threw my arms forward and open, the universal reflex for no, wait, stop. But what can wide arms do in a situation like that? Was I trying to shield my baby brother? Was I trying to keep my own balance? The crash must have been loud, but there is no sound in my memory. Inside the house, our mother had watched the whole scene from her bedroom window, my father asleep on the bed beside her. I don't know if he could hear the sound of the crash above or below the racket of the window unit air conditioner, but he definitely heard my mother's shouts. He's been hit! He's been hit! David's been hit! Out there on the sidewalk, what I saw next was our father running around the corner of the house, Running toward us in a frantic, herky-jerky, barefoot-on-a-stone-strewn sidewalk sort of high-step-kick combo. Running toward us in what he'd worn to bed, a pair of tighty-whitey underwear. Out there on the sidewalk, my father running toward us, nearly nude, without even his glasses or his shoes. Someone called 911. Someone always does in my family. It's our predestined lot in life. One of us is always at the right or wrong place at the right or wrong time. We've called 911 for a passed out drunk along the side of the road, for a shed set on fire, for a parking lot argument poised to tip into domestic violence, for reckless driving, for a young child wandering alone on a country road with fast cars and a narrow shoulder, for thugs dealing drugs on street corners, for a pregnant woman choking on an asthma attack, for car crashes, so many car crashes. Automobile accidents are the family call-in specialty. My brother and I grew up on that long hill of a street with all those intersections. We were weaned on the drawn-out sound of squealing brakes before the sudden smash. A squeal is good. It tells you what's coming. It tells you that someone had surely tried to stop what was about to happen. The worst is when there is no squeal, just the sharp surprise of a crack or boom. When I asked my brother later why he stopped the car while backing up, he says it's because he saw the SUV coming and knew it would hit him. He says he didn't pull forward because he would have been pinned against the telephone pole, and he didn't back up because he would have ended up in the oncoming lane. I don't know how he could have made such a split-second calculation, but who's to say? The woman in the SUV must have slowed down, surely, but we all agree that no one heard the squeal. Not my father in his bed, not my mother at the window, not my brother in the car, not me out there on the sidewalk. We're pretty sure I was the one to call it in that night. First I called 911, and then I called my fiancé. My brother and I inherited the 911 gene from our father's side of the family. Maybe it's the Irish blood, always ready to run into the fray, always ready to fight or to help, whatever the situation calls for once we arrive. Every year, my brother and I play a game. We keep a running tally of our individual 911 calls. He lives in Arizona now and I'm in Pennsylvania. Two years ago, not even an hour after midnight had hit here and was still two hours away in Tucson, I was already up one nothing. There was a drunk driver in front of my car swerving all over the place, crossing the lane into oncoming traffic. First I called 911 and then I called my brother. He answered the phone by saying, Happy New Year! I said, The score is one nothing, I'm winning. He said, Already? He knew exactly what I was talking about. We were all lucky, if that's how we want to look at it. The driver of the SUV walked away without a record. My brother walked away from the accident too, but his back still gives him trouble even now, 13 years later. I was lucky to have stayed on the sidewalk and not stepped out into the street. But sometimes I think, if I hadn't wanted to go out that night, if I hadn't wanted to take the smaller car, if I'd had enough money for my own car or my own apartment that summer. All siblings keep an invisible logbook of debts and gratitude. It's best not
0: to talk too much about the accounting of it all. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad that you shared that essay, and I I want to use that as a bridge because I want to talk about um, the project you're currently working on, which is an essay collection um, with the working title, For All We Learned, The Sea.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that it's funny. Um, the essay I just read is very different in a lot of ways from this book of essays that I've been working on. Um, but, you know, there we have that that duality again, I've got, I always feel like I have several different modes of being or voices or something. And um, I think a great thing is that as a writer, you get to choose, you know, which one you wanna express on any given day. But the the book that I've been working on is a collection of connected essays that explore um, spirituality and landscape. And usually the intersection of those two And all of the ways that longing and belonging show up in our lives, whether it's about where we feel at home in the world physically um, or the, the things that we believe and how we feel at home um, on in an an internal way and the way we think about things and believe things and choose to live our lives. Um, And like the, the kind of, the backstory of that is that um, when I was 16, I became um, a very devoted follower of a specific faith, and you can hear even in my voice, like, I don't talk a lot about this, and so I write a lot about it, but I don't talk a lot about it, and I get, like, I um, always feels like I'm outing myself in some weird way, but at 16, I became... Uh, a born-again evangelical Christian, which people who know me now think is very odd. And people who knew me before probably think it's very odd that I don't identify that way anymore. But at 16, I um, basically went on this, like, spiritual quest for myself, looking for the meaning of life, and that's the faith tradition that I ended up in. And it really provided me with my identity for um, the next, pretty much, like, 14 15 16 years of my life and then i discovered one day much to my dismay that oh all of these things i believed before don't really feel like they make sense anymore um which was very disorienting and confusing and there was a lot of grief about that um and i have you know kind of taken that and and paired it with in these essays um Idea of landscape and seascape and where you feel at home in the world because um, I, I long to live in a place that's closer to a coastline. I live in southwestern Pennsylvania and it's lovely here. It's also where I grew up and I've always kind of felt like in some way I don't quite belong. Like I'm always feeling the draw to somewhere else. Um, and so I realized that these two subjects. Which on the surface have little to do with each other, like where I live and what I believe. Um, there really are parallel tracks in my life, with this feeling of the push and the pull of, um, you know, what we choose and and why we why we feel at home in places, um, you know, whether we understand that or not. And so that's the collection I'm working on. It always feels a little amorphous when I talk about it but
0: (laughs) I I can understand that when you know working on something that is still in process can be really challenging to talk about
1: yeah yeah and I actually you know I've been working on this collection um, for probably about four years now but I wrote a bunch of things for the book and then I kind of I took a break and I haven't worked, hadn't worked on it for a while because I really felt like I could I couldn't see a way forward anymore mm-hmm. in the collection which was like real life mirroring what the essays were about like I don't I felt like I don't have a roadmap for religion anymore and I don't have exactly a roadmap for where I want to live and now I don't have a roadmap for what this collection is trying to be and what this book wants to be and how to write the book and mm-hmm. so yeah it's all about. <laughs> It's all about uh being off the map in so many ways.
0: <laughs> well, I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Hmm.
1: All right, so the best advice probably ever, which was, was not related to writing, was the night before my wedding I actually got cold feet, which was um mortifying to me. Like I was like, Wow, I'm such a cliche <laughs> and um I didn't expect that to happen at all. And I said to my mom, like, oh, my gosh, I'm feeling like nervous. Like, I don't know if I want to get married tomorrow. And she said to me, if you weren't getting married tomorrow, would you want to break up with him? And I was like, no, of course not. She's like, "Okay, then I think you're just nervous. Go to sleep. (laughs) And I was like, you're right. I'm just nervous, nervous and overly tired. So I'm going to go to sleep now. Which I think is like pretty much good advice all the time. Like when you're running into like, you know, the overwhelm and fear, like maybe you just need a snack and some sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a friend who says that too. She's like, You need a snack and a nap. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the best writing advice I ever received um was from a writer named Larry Sutton, S U T I N. He also um is a teacher at Vermont College of Fine Arts and in a workshop he gave the advice once He said just to everybody he said stop trying to appear normal on the page mm. And he's like you know you're and what he meant was you know your quirks and oddities and eccentricities are what make you interesting whether you're writing stories from your life or poetry or fiction like your weirdness is where the good stuff is which i love and then the third piece of advice that i got was um once when I was struggling to write something and I could not figure out how to write it, it was something very different than I'd ever had to write before, I was really struggling. And um, actually, my my husband was the one who said to me, "So you've never written anything like this before?" I'm like, "Right. What part of that didn't you understand? I told you." I was like the, <laughs> I was like the. If you watch Sesame Street, I was like the um the composer mm-hmm. who he's a muppet, a hot puppet or a muppet, whatever. And he's, like, a composer, and he's trying to compose Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star. And he, like, gets the first part of it. He's, like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Horrible chord, right? And he starts banging his head on the keyboard, going, oh, I'll never get it. Never. So that was me, like, banging my head on my computer keyboard, wailing about how I'd never get it. And so my husband's, like, so you're learning to do this as you're doing it. I was like, yeah, and I don't know how to do it. He's like, (laughs) he like had to like say it like five times. He's like, so you're learning to do it as you're doing it. I'm like, yeah, what's your deal? (laughs) And I was like, oh, finally, that's why it's hard. Yep. Because I'm learning to do it while I'm doing it. Like you can't, you know, with certain things, you can't just like learn it and then do it. You have to learn it while you're doing it. And it's uncomfortable and it's hard and that's just how it is. So you gotta push yourself through that phase.
0: Yeah. I love that. There are so many other things that I want to talk to you about and um I wish that there was time to talk about them all. Um, but I wanna give you a chance to really speak directly to listeners and share some of your wisdom with folks who are out there, maybe writing or thinking about writing or even thinking about grad school i think what i would really like people to know
1: is i as i had said before there's no one way to be a writer you don't have to go to graduate school to be a writer you don't have to write every day you don't have to keep a journal you don't have to write in one genre or another or just pick one. Like, there's all of these things that go into what I call the myth of the real writer. And I think it keeps so many of us down, thinking that we have to fit into some sort of, you know, pre-imagined role of what a writer is and does. And if you are, you know, letting yourself kind of be squashed by that myth, I hope you'll just let yourself be free of it and realize that whatever your process is, whatever you need to write and however you write, like that's all legitimate. And I hope you'll embrace that and, and know that, you know, you are a writer. There's not a wrong way to do it. Um, there might be better ways to improve upon whatever you're doing now, but you don't have to, to think that you have to be one way or another. So break free of the myth of the real writer.
0: That's such great advice. It really is. Um, And just to remember, you know? Yeah. You might be learning it as you're doing it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I have to remind myself that pretty much every day. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, Jenna, it's been so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate talking to you. And if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at thewordseller.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in her room. Dot com. You'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with writer and great life designer Gemma Stone. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.